Welcome to another episode of Fresno's Best Podcast. Really excited for today's episode. Today I have uh, two people on. This is the first time that we have a pair on. Their names are Natalie Caples and Kim Dildine, and they are the co-CEOs of the Central California Food Bank. The Central California Food Bank has been instrumental um, in helping um, our city, as well as cities throughout the Central Valley, uh, cope and manage through this crisis. And I was really excited to talk to them uh, to get their perspective on food, um, their perspective on the pandemic, um, and their perspective on Fresno more generally and what working at the food bank uh, has taught them about our city. So let's go meet them. Um, so where do you ladies like to eat in Fresno when we're not all trapped indoors? Um, I am a huge fan of Yosemite Ranch and Heirloom. Um, I used to live down the street from Yosemite Ranch and we would take, when we had one child, we would go almost every other week. It was kind of like our family special place. Um, but since then I now have five kids, so we don't get there as often. But our oldest two beg, like if they're going to get to go out to dinner, that's where they go. Um, and since heirloom is new, my husband and I now like to sneak over there for something a little bit faster if we can't get in over at Yosemite Ranch. So great local eats that we absolutely love. What do you like to eat at heirloom? Uh, everything is fabulous. Yes. Um, <laughs> in, in particular, though. In particular, the surf and turf. Oh, um, I haven't had that Which is both the um tri-tip and the shrimp it's just amazing and the fresh uh, local cocktails are delicious as well wow yeah no i um i'm a little embarrassed i order well i'm not embarrassed i don't want to say embarrassed um i the thing that i love in terms of drinks at heirloom is this thing called lavender bubble bath and i feel silly ordering <laughs> it when i say Can I have a lavender <laughs> bubble bath um but i you know, I mean, there's there's great cocktails in Fresno. It's definitely one of them. What about you, yes. Natalie? What do you like to eat in Fresno? So I'm a little biased because my husband and I own. Oh, geez, um, my husband and I own Benediction, and so clearly I have to plug Benediction as my favorite local restaurant. So really, yeah, yeah. So okay. All right. <laughs> it just gets more fun with Natalie. I knew yeah, I because okay. I knew I'd be boring. So <laughs> when no, no, it's not true. So when I bring people from out of town, Benediction is usually on the list of like, can we go oh, while it. I'm here? And I'm talking yes, people from I LA and the Bay Area. They all love it. It, it, it oh, is. Oh yeah, it is we have a yeah, we have a little bit of a following um, in in uh, the LA region and in the Bay Area. Um, I think it's primarily probably due to Yelp early on and because we're kind of in that corridor, you know, of, of traveling, you know, down the 99, people want to make a quick stop. Sure, sure. Um, but, but yeah, clearly I have to, I have to give my okay. husband a plug and, and say Benediction. Could, <laughs> we, we could talk about Benediction. I could talk about Benediction for an hour, but we, you know, <laughs> we don't need to go there. Um, where other than your family restaurant, where do you like to eat? Mm, um, we we also like to visit um, other uh, locally owned restaurants. Um, I would say um, 
probably some of my favorite are some of the newer food trucks. Um, okay. So we started, we started out as a food truck. Um, some of my uh, long held favorites, um, clearly like Mexican food. So like Tacos Boys is like one of my favorites, like over at Enzo's table. Um, and I love taco, um, the taco uh, barbecue truck, like their bulgogi. I don't know. I'm, I'm like, yeah, their bulgogi like torta is like amazing. So it's, I don't think you know, I've like had this that. Korean Mex. Oh yeah, it's like this Korean Mexican fusion. Um, so kind and, of like um, what's the guy in LA, Roy Choi? Um, I'm forgetting his name. Yes, yeah, it is. It is kind of like that. And I think that um, I remember at least initially when Taco first got started, there was some. There was I think there was like some copyright or like, hey, you're a little bit too close to you know our name, <laughs> and so you need to make some. We need to make some changes, but um, the family is amazing. The food, awesome. Um, yeah, and I just, I, I literally could not choose a restaurant because I could just hop around from local food trucks to, to local restaurants, and I like to try new, interesting, kind of further, more like risky, like food options, I think. Absolutely. You know, I was yeah. just watching um, the, that new show on Hulu called Taste the Nation with Padma Lakshmi. And mm -hmm. it, it was, you know, it was kind of the, the premise is that like America, what makes it great is like the blending of these uh, different uh, cultural influences in our food and that we have these new creations. And like that, for me, like what Roy Choi's done and a lot of the the, the things that I enjoy are, are oftentimes hybrids or blends or, you know, mm -hmm. people taking two cultures and putting them together. But I want to move to what you guys like to cook um, because uh, we've been trapped at home ultimately. And a part of your guys' organization is, is giving fresh produce to people to cook. So being the leaders of that organization, I'm sure you guys have some ideas or, you know, uh, you have, uh, things that you like to cook that might be inspiring to those listening. So what, when you're in the kitchen at home, uh, what are some staples for you guys that you like to cook? Mm. Natalie, I'll let you go first on this one. Yeah. Um, Aside from eggs. Well, yeah, clearly. <laughs> um, my staple is eggs. Um, that is like something where I'm home. Like if I'm home and I'm going to eat something, it's like always eggs. Um, but since quarantine, um, I'm totally like a cliche, but like baking has been kind of something oh, yeah. that has been, I mean, everybody's kind of like taking up like baking and like bread making. Um, I will all, for some reason, I will always choose to um, bake like something like sweet, like cinnamon rolls has been like a big thing in our house um, lately. Um, basically anything that I can get the kids, um, you know, in and help with, which is typically like sweet treats. But I actually, in terms of like my favorite time of year to cook, I love like winter um, cooking during the winter. There's yeah. just something about like the hardiness of like the meals and like the comfort food, you know, that you can create during the winter. Like I'm a really big like stew and like soup uh, person. And I just don't, I just don't like eating that, you know, during the, yeah. during the summer. And so I tend to, in the summer? I mean, what do you even cook in this? I mean, it's, it's just everything's barbecue, hot. right? It's barbecue it's or barbecue it's like salads. salads. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. And so while, while I love that stuff and, you know, for us, you know, we try to, you know, we try to frequent, you know, the local farmer's markets and like farm stands. And so we try to eat, you know, kind of what's in, um, you know, what's seasonal and, and, and what's available. So like a ton of, um, you know, fresh fruits and veggies for salads, 
during the, during the summer, but yeah, winter is just kind of my jam. I just, there's just so much, I want to use my oven. There's so much more like breadth and depth and sometimes like flavor to the food that, that you create, um, during the winter. And so I just love the, you know, the simmering pot on the stove or, you know, the Dutch oven in the, in the oven, creating something like really like hearty and substantial. Yeah. Baking, baking's been fun. I, I, I know a lot of people have been uh, up to that lately. Uh, one of the things that I got into when this first started was fermenting stuff um, because mm -hmm. I really haven't been, I haven't been, you know, able, because I'm at work, I haven't been able to, you know, kind of Eat walk things watch. like a science yeah. experiment, you know, mm -hmm. um, and that's been fun. But what about you, Kim? What have you been cooking lately? Um, since COVID, I've actually been experimenting more with plant-based diets. Um, you know, we've watched some documentaries and tried to <laughs> discover, um, you know, cooking a little bit differently. Um, my personal favorite is a roasted cauliflower and black bean and sweet potato, um, taco. Ooh. Um, so it's been fun to experiment again, um, you know, fresh and local and plant-based, all the health benefits. And it's, it's creative and a lot of fun. The other thing with COVID, I don't know what it is because I haven't changed my recipe, but my cookie game, my chocolate chip cookie game has been on point <laughs> uh, during COVID. And um, I used to be able to ruin a basic chocolate chip cookie about three out of four times. And every single batch during COVID I don't know. I've just been inspired. All the additional cooking <laughs> wow. has probably made me a little bit better, a little bit more pers uh, uh, precise on my temperatures and the oven and everything else. And so, yeah, it's, it's been a lot. It's actually been a lot of fun while the workload is a little bit higher. It's been a lot of fun to spend the time in the kitchen, be teaching my kids um, about eating healthier and just eating in general and, uh, and, ha and having a little bit of fun. Okay. Two follow-ups to that. We'll start with the positive and then we'll get to the food documentaries that are to scare people. Um, so uh, what's your secret? What's, what makes for a good chocolate chip cookie? Is it firm? Is it a little softer? Is it, is there a lot of chocolate chips in there? Is there a few? I mean, the, the chocolate chip cookies, I mean, they're, you know, they can come in many shapes and forms. So how do yours come? We like ours big and soft, almost mm. like just done. Just um, so not quite falling apart, but um, yeah, like just done. And I think the trick is like over blending. So mm. like blend it way longer than you think you need or is possible. And it actually gets that like right, right texture. So kind of like a, what's it not foamy? I'm thinking of a word like puffy, like fluffy. cloudy. cloudy yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like a cloudy. And so, yeah, yeah we use the whole Airy. bag in a batch, but um, I, they've been a little bit larger and um, during COVID because everyone needs a little extra, <laughs> a little extra love during COVID. Um, so we're offsetting all that plant-based eating yeah. and um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just been a lot of fun and, and that, that gooey, ooey gooey, and hot, exactly. which has also been quite the craze with Crave, the that's fresh true. baked that's cookies. True. So yeah. it's kind of my own home version of Crave. Yep, that's for free publicity, Crave. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I don't, I don't understand the barbarians that like their cookies uh, hard and like that weirdo, almost like a cracker. Like those people are just. You know, they should just be embarrassed to eat those. Uh, <laughs> I, I totally agree. I personally prefer mine. Nobody gasp, not cooked, but the rest of my family does. And um, yeah, 
and the gooey gooey is the way to go. They should like, like break, they should fall apart if you yeah. try them right oh. when they come out of the oven and they should just, yeah. they finish cooking as they sit on the baking sheet on top of the stove. You're on it. So, I think, yeah. I think we like the same time. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm yes. an underdone person too. I don't like to say it, but I am. Um, so now let's talk about documentaries. So people in Fresno are very carnivorous. You know, we like our meat, um, but we would probably all do better to eat more plants and vegetables, if not environmental reasons, but for just purely health reasons. So what is a non-threatening documentary that you've watched? Well, I don't know if there's, any, I don't know if these exist. Maybe what's, what's a good place to start if you're a serious carnivore and you're thinking about this in terms of what- Oh gosh, so I have a terrible memory and I'm not good with names, um, but I think just basic plant-based. I don't think it was Forks Over Knives, but Netflix is a great resource. Mm -hmm. and um and so is pinterest just to get like google stuff and get some suggestions without being um too scary and i think like seeing the um you know the health benefits and it wasn't um sensationalized it wasn't um you know supersize me where it's like obviously if you eat fast food it's supersized every single day you're like you're not going to do well but um, I think some of the eye-opening that even if you, um, you know, think you're eating healthy, um, even with lean proteins, that it's not always the way your body um, interacts with them. And actually, one of my brother-in-laws who eats, I would say, the healthiest out of our entire family, um, had some, some medical challenges this year. And his doctor was like, yeah, I, I know you think you are because you're eating, um, you know, chicken breast and fish but really you need to like cut out like all proteins and just like the market improvements in his health um, were, were incredible. So it, it kind of, that is what like launched us in our journey and just like exploring. Um, again, I have five kids. They're not super interested in not having meat, um, but trying to be more creative. Um, and they've gotten to where like, they don't moan when they realize there's no meat at dinner. And, and then we just talk about like how our body feels afterwards and, and what that looks like. And it's gotten a lot easier and to not then compensate and fill it with carbs. Right. Yeah, that's, that's the real that's challenge. Trick. That's the trick, isn't it? <laughs> Where our, yeah. Our meatless dinners are pasta. Exactly. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> pasta with heavy cream, <laughs> some Romano cheese. Yeah, it's, it's, it is, it's a, it's a tough you have to be, you know, you just have to change your expectations of how you feel after a meal, I think. Yep. I think that's part of it. And I, you know, we talked in our last episode, we talked to Greg Charton and he was talking about his kind of transition to plant-based diet. Um, and, you know, it's, it's hard for everybody, but, it, but ultimately, you know, uh, you feel good. And I personally, you know, I, I try to eat plant-based, but I also, you know, have meat kind of like a couple times a week and that's, uh -huh. that's kind of the middle ground that I've found myself in. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's not easy and, um, but little progress is better than none. So I think, you know, if you can, you know, some of the, one of the diets that I tried for a while was called uh, BB six, which was like vegan until six. And so you just, have and, um, and then at dinner you can have your chicken breast or whatever. You know. yeah. the, the trick with eating meat though is, <laughs> 
it's you, you want to do lean, but eventually bacon gets involved and it's just, you know, it's just a slippery slope back to the, the good stuff. So yep. uh, bacon and sauces, that's the way to make it all yeah. go down. Right. So uh, let's, um, let's kind of transition. I, um, like many people spend a lot of time indoors watching TV during this. Um, and one of my favorite shows to rewatch endlessly, like we all do is the office. Um, and in season six of The Office, uh, Jim proposes to the higher-ups at corporate that he should be a co-manager with Michael Scott, which if you know the show The Office, you know, you know that that's going to end poorly, and it does. <laughs> um, being, it turns out being a co-manager is a, a, a challenging uh, thing to do when your co-manager is a narcissist. Um, and yet, you guys seem to be successfully managing together. Uh, a large complicated organization. So I'm, I'm curious um, how you've avoided the pitfalls of Michael Scott um, and Jim Halpert. Well, luckily neither one of us is a narcissist. So right. I think that that probably started us. <laughs> yeah, that's like the baseline, right? Yeah. Um, the, the really interesting thing about um, kind of the evolution of this co-CEO role is prior to to leading the organization in this capacity. Um, I was the chief operating officer and Kim was the chief administrative officer. And so there was already a natural um, platform for us because you know the, the work that we have done and the way that we have interacted over the last four years in those roles um, was, was I think at least initially there were some growing pains, but you know, after four years of of you know working closely with your colleague, um, figuring out how you're leveraging each other's strengths, you know, for the benefit of the organization, it was a, it was a it was a really easy transition. I'm not sure that had we not been in those prior roles, you know, set up for this kind of succession plan, that it would have been as easy. But um, you know, I know that Kim is amazing and hardworking and passionate about the mission of the organization. We want the same things um, for the organization. And, and when I think that you know that your partner has, you know, your best interests at heart, the community's best interests and wants to do what's best for the organization, it's so much easier to, um, to come together to kind of uh, make that collective vision happen. But, but I definitely think that the, the prior years of of you know experience and interaction and just our our you know you've been with the food bank for nine eight eight years eight mm -hmm. years and i've been with the food bank for um a little over 12 and so it's just you 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 have a feel for somebody and you have a an established relationship and i think that's what has made it work so far yeah and i think that this probably can't happen everywhere um, with every combination of person. And so I think, again, four years of practice plus a deep appreciation for the job that the other person does, that the unique skills that they bring to the table, that the credentials that they bring. Um, and again, we're 100% in alignment with our overarching mission to get more food, more high quality food to more people in need. Um, everything else is just details. And so it actually makes us a lot stronger because we bring our own unique skill sets and vision um, on, on the details and the tactics um, on how we get there. And we have our own expertise in our own areas. And so we can lay that out and then 
challenge some ideas and push each other a little bit further to really, yeah, again, leverage our strengths and get the best outcome um, for our clients. And so we truly believe that we're better together. And I think our vision for the organization, because none of the work at Central California Food Bank gets done in isolation. We rely on, you know, over 5,000 volunteers and we rely on donors, both financial and product. So having that vision for relationship and leveraging each other's strengths really is at the core of who we are and is what makes us successful. That's, that's a great lead into the next question that I had, which is, you know, what's this, what's uh, maybe, maybe give us a little snapshot before and after, uh, you know, the pandemic hit. Um, kind of what was what was life like before for the food bank and like what has it been in the last few months? Yeah, the um, that's a really good question. I think Kim and I, you know, after the last three and a half months, three and a half months of the, the pandemic, maybe four months, um, I think we're still trying to, um, I think that we have, uh, we've uh, implemented and executed a, a good response, but I think we're still uh, course correcting kind of daily, you know, as new information comes in. Um, but ultimately, the, the, the core um, mission of the food bank and the way that we provide our service to the community really has not changed. So before the pandemic, um, you know, one in four individuals and one in three kids in the Central Valley were um, at risk of hunger. You know, food insecurity is persistent and it's pervasive and it existed long before the pandemic it the pandemic has heightened um, and expanded um, the need for food maybe with uh, client populations that we hadn't currently you know that we weren't servicing because you know they needed to access the emergency food network for the first time um, but but the core of what what we do and what we execute you know hasn't really changed um, for you know when when the pandemic hit i think for us you know it was i felt like it was like a slow crawl like getting to the point of like shelter in place but i also feel like it happened just kind of like you know in an instant mm -hmm. um and so i think people were were not prepared they didn't know what to expect um you know the the kind of um uh, immediacy or the quickness of the furloughs kind of happened and so we immediately saw a spike um in new um in new families and new individuals accessing the emergency food network i think that was about 25 25 to 30 percent of our clients were first-time users they had never needed um, to access the food pantry or the food bank services before and now all of a sudden you're in the midst of, of a pandemic and and you know you need to you need to figure out how you're providing for your family um coupled with you know some of our pantries didn't didn't know what the pandemic meant for them in terms of how they were going to continue to provide service and keep their volunteers and their staff safe. So you had an increase in service and then, um, or an increase in need, and then you had the, the corresponding reaction of some agencies shutting down because they weren't sure how they were going to, you know, make their way through and continue to provide the service to keep people safe. So I think in the beginning there was a, you know, it was a little bumpier. There was some course corrections, but as soon as we understood, um, you know, where our agency partners' uh, fears or challenges were coming from, we were able to meet them where we are, provide them with resources to be able to open back up, to be able to meet um, the increased need. And I think to date we're we're somewhere around. 20 to 25 percent over what we've distributed during the same time last year so so huge spikes 
um, in, in both need, but also, um, you know, donations and our ability to, to meet the increasing needs. So. Wow. so it's a little bit of scaling up what you're already doing, um, but that scaling up has been met with a response from the community in support of that. Yeah, definitely. And I'll let Kim talk a little bit. Um, one of the other, one of the things too that I think we're most proud of is um, even though like our core services or the core, um, you know, execution hasn't changed, there, it allowed us to identify some gaps in our existing services. And so we kind of had the ability to retool very quickly and create some new programming um, to meet the, 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 need that existed because of the pandemic and I'll let I'll let Kim kind of discuss that yeah I mean with everything going on um, we really made it a priority to analyze our gaps where are the gaps where can we make the biggest impact and really I think we we resisted the temptation to just shove all of our food as fast as we could out the doors which is what we could have done and what many food banks across the, the country did do. And while that isn't you know, necessarily terrible, what that gave us opportunity in that like one to two week pause, we, we continued in our existing network to provide the food as much as possible, but that allowed us to do is to bring on new collaborative partners. So like one of them is um, Bitwise and Neighborhood Industries. So Neighborhood Industries um, was into workforce development. They have a thrift store and recycling center. They essentially had to shut down. So they had a vested interest in keeping their employees employed. Um, Bitwise made a financial investment and they started making home deliveries. We didn't do home deliveries prior to COVID. Um, just the scale and the cost effectiveness, it didn't make sense for us. Um, but they started doing that. Um, the co food cost became astronomical for them. And so we started collaborating with them to provide all of the food. And so now they're servicing about between 12 and 1500 households every single week um, with home deliveries for elderly and immunocompromised. And so it's just being open and available. We've partnered with um, community medical with their home health nurses. Again, we don't have the capacity to make home deliveries, but they have nurses in homes of those who are vulnerable every single day. And so we provide them boxes full of food. Um, we've built collaborations with school districts who've had to shut down their meal programs or due to cost have had to restrict that it's not at every single campus, it's at a portion. And so those that aren't um, provided hot meals, we're providing boxes full of food. Um, United Farm Worker, I mean, the list could just go on and on and on where we've really sat back and been creative again where are people what are the skills that they have and where can we utilize and leverage what they already have in existence to do even more and and it's exciting and most of them want to be partners now forever it's not just a covid response they have been reinvigorated and are excited about their community impact and so i think that really has a lot to say about us and our team, but also about um, the Central Valley and how we're, we are actually very flexible and innovative and cutting edge. And Natalie's had the opportunity to present to Feeding America, which is our national partner organization. Um, and she's presented on many um, panels on how Central California is the leader 
in how this, um, this response and how this should be done um, in the nation. And so I think that's something that our community um, should be able to hang their hat on and be really proud of how we've responded to this pandemic. Absolutely. And I, I, I think that what, what you're saying about this last and beyond the pandemic, I mean, if one in four and one in three are your numbers, then clearly this is not just a pandemic problem. This is a this is a this is a problem that's ex, just extant in the valley, and that needs to be addressed, you know, in terms of long term. And so I'm 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 happy to hear that, uh, you know, sometimes crises can be can be places where there's experimentation, and you know, the line, the traditional lines are kind of made vague, so more groups can collaborate. And I'm glad to hear that that's um, that that's happening. Um, now, in terms of what you guys actually deliver to people, which is groceries, right? Which is uh, you know produce in its whole form, uncooked. Um, so my, my, my kind of follow-up question is, is, is based on my experience with people, which is uh, especially people that live in maybe food deserts, um, and we can talk about what that is, but um, people don't cook that much anymore. And so if you give them a bushel of carrots, um, some radishes and a beet, you know, are people just going to throw them away? Are they going to know what to do with them? Are they going to be able to cook them in a way that their children are? I mean, we were just talking about our kids and what they want to eat, you know? I mean, a chicken nugget is always more appealing than a beet salad. So, so how, how do you know that people are using what you give them? Uh, are they, they're eating it. And, you know, if people don't know how to cook, how, how, how do we expect them to be able to use what we give them? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think one of the ways that we try to tackle that is through um, looking at our program delivery through a lens of like cultural competency. And so for us, you know, when we think about, um, you know, the, the pantry um, and shelf stable items that we're providing in a food box, and we think about the produce, we do try to think about the population that we're serving. Um, you know, providing a bok choy maybe to our clients in Mendota is probably not ideal. They probably yeah. have not seen, maybe they've seen bok choy before, yeah. but cool. less likely. Um, yeah. And it's not part of their normal cultural diet. And so, so although it's not always possible um, based on the donations and the type of produce that we get, and I mean, the, the volume of produce that, the, that Central California creates, um, the number of commodities and the specialty crops um, is, is amazing, but some, but, but some of our clients still don't know, right, what, um, you know, what a mandarin is, you know, what arugula, you know, looks like. And so while we strive our best to be culturally competent in the populations and the geographies that we're serving, there is always going to be a component which is so, so necessary, which is providing recipes, nutrition education, um, and just uh, showing people what they can do um, with, um, with fresh produce. And we're lucky because there are a number of organizations out there um, you know, that do um, cooking classes like uh, Fresno Metro Ministry does cooking matters, um, you know, classes. We have other agency partners um, that will provide recipes, um, either that we provide them or, or they get on their own to show them like how they can prepare this food if they are not um, comfortable or familiar with the product. But yeah, providing food is, is, is not always enough. And so um, while providing food is 
you know, is, is, is what we do. We really um, rely on agency partners and other, um, you know, collaborations to be able to say, okay, this is what we do really well. So how do we marry our program execution with what you do, which is cooking and taste testing and recipes um, and outreach, you know, that educational outreach. And so we're always looking for partners um, that, that want to do that. We have had programs like that funded in the past. Um, they are grant-based programs. And so, you know, we always do search for, for programming that helps us kind of expand our, our outreach and education component. Um, but right now we do really rely heavily on agency partners on, 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 um, on the education, on the education piece with, with nutrition and, and health and cooking. You know, just to complain about the public school system for a minute, because, you know, it's everyone's favorite activity. Uh, I, 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 I'm a school teacher, so it's, you know, I get to. Um, I, <laughs> there used to be classes that, that kids would take, you know, how to cook. And, you know, it, it was something that uh, most kids would take at some point in their uh, K-12 education. Um, home ec. Home ec. Home ec. Exactly. exactly. And or harvest of the month for elementary school kids, right? Like community yeah. garden-based learning, yeah. And it's just it's that's it's gone for the most part. I mean, it exists in some small forms, but most kids aren't going to take something like that. And honestly, you know, if you if you could, I mean, I don't want to denigrate any other electives or disciplines, but like learning how to cook well for yourself probably is one of the most important skills you could learn as a kid um, that you could carry into adulthood. Um, and it's just disappointing. I mean, I think a lot of our culture too is like fascinated by these food competitions and, you know, watching these super trained chefs, you know, do, you know, kind of like elite athletes, you know, make these amazing meals. And I think people just need like simple staples that they can do. And it's just disappointing that, that that's kind of become our culture where it's like this cooking is over here. And, you know, if, unless you're unless you're really skilled, it's not something that you can even try, and it's disappointing to me. But you know, it's kind of the way it is, I guess. Um, yeah. So, I guess that uh, kind of leads me to talk a little bit about food deserts. Um, are there certain places in Fresno that have less less access to uh, food, um, and uh, why do you, why do you think that is? Kim, do you want to? Yeah, I mean, really food access and most neighborhoods um, of poverty have restricted food access and high quality food access. And so that is a real challenge for our families. Um, the more rural you get, um, that is increasingly harder. Um, and so our, our families struggle daily. Where's their local, uh, local market? What's available to them? How expensive is the product that especially fresh product um, available to them? And so um, Natalie can provide this, this specific de definition on um, a food desert, but really we see that um, all of our communities of poverty really, really struggle with having like a high quality um, economical market um, in, in their neighborhood. And so um, when we, you know, we envision a hunger-free Central California um, and 
that would mean that everyone has the proper access and they have the resources um, to utilize the services in their neighborhood. And, you know, as we talk about nutrition education and other programming and workforce development and, you know, getting people out of our line, um, what one of our challenges is that nobody else is going to come in behind us and providing the volume of food that we do. And so, um, you know, that's why we have a vested interest in partnerships and collaboration working together because again no one is coming in behind us to provide that and so we need to leverage you know our agencies and their their skills and their programs um, to get people out of the line and connect them with the resources to you know improve their lives and um, and, and have higher quality nutrition yeah i i remember a conversation that i had with aaron foster who's Kind of working with Advanced Peace and some of the organizations um, in Southwest Fresno, and he, he described to me like the only grocery store um, that they have is really that Food for Less along the freeway there, um, yeah. and that's a large community of people. And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's you know, and I, I don't know how many hundreds of bonds are in North Fresno. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, I mean, you're looking at yeah, that's what, a challenge. You know, and what are the barriers? Is it transportation? What can they get to by foot? Uh, many households have one vehicle, which is with the working adult, you know, in the home. And how do they get to and from? A lot of our families are shopping at corner markets, markets. and while they provide a valuable service, you know, there might be some bananas and apples on the counter at a dollar a piece. And so it's in when you're trying to stretch that finite budget, um, you know, all of us in every market know that it's cheaper and the calorie count is much higher in the center of the store than on the perimeter. And so, um, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables and meat and dairy become a real challenge where, you know, carbs, puff cereals, chips are more affordable and are much easier to access. You know, a a child can walk in, you know, a young person can walk into any liquor store and get access to that, um, but they can't get access to highly nutritious food. Yeah. Um, Yeah, well, and, and I think, you know, part of the thing that we're not addressing is that, you know, people think about food deserts and they think about our rural areas, you know, like Kim mentioned, but as you said, we have areas in Southeast, Southwest Fresno, Mm -hmm. Central Fresno, you know, close to Fresno State, where where's the closest, you know, grocery store, right? And I think that, you know, this is a, um, this is a bigger, this is a bigger um, community challenge than just the food bank. We have to, um, you know, it's a city planning issue. um, It's a generational poverty um, issue. We have to incentivize um, stores to be present in these neighborhoods, right? So we can um, provide equitable access, um, just like we have in, you know, North or, or West or East Fresno or Clovis. And I think that the hard part is because there there aren't um, incentives for these stores to be in these locations. They know that they can make more money if they go to North Fresno or, or Clovis we're always going to be in this cycle where certain pockets and neighborhoods are going to be underserved because we're not incentivizing businesses to plant roots in communities that like really, really need it. Um, And so, you know, I think that, that, you know, this is, and, and maybe it's, um, 
you know, our, our onus and responsibility is highlighting the inequities, um, you know, that we see in, in um, the service area that, that we're serving, right, where we see um, barriers, where we see like a greater need for um, local government to be able to, you know, play a role in how we're getting, um, you know, our, you know, families and neighbors like access to the same type of uh, quality, affordable, nutritious food that we can find. Um, you know, in, in North Fresno. And so it really is, we have to be um, really on our game and stepping up our awareness on, on the issue of access and food deserts, but we need um, corporate, you know, business and government partnerships to actually like drive the change. Right. So let's, let's tie this all together in kind of a little bit of a bow. So um, maybe just talk for a few minutes about how food scarcity and hunger kind of have like a, uh, they kind of snowball into other uh, things like um, poverty and education and then just the functioning of a city. And if certain people can't get access to food, how does that disrupt uh, a community? So, cause I think, yeah. you know, if you just compartmentalize hunger into this over area over mm -hmm. here uh, without seeing kind of how it, functions in the ecosystem of a city, I think you can kind of misunderstand its gravity and how important it is. Yeah, hunger is a symptom of a larger root problem. Um, and that larger problem is, is poverty and in some cases, generational poverty. And I think that um, if you have never experienced poverty, if you have never lived in poverty, you drastically underestimate the emotional and psychological toll that poverty has on people. And um, when we talk about, you know, hunger and, and um, you know, lack of food, you know, as a symptom of a, of a broader um, root cause, it it literally like permeates like every part um, of your life. And so, you know, we have, um, you know, we have some um, clients and families that we have served that have um, expressed huge levels of psychological um, distress, not knowing where their next meal is coming from. And so when you think about how you carry that emotional and psychological distress, you know, through your day? Are you able to perform well and focus at work? Are you able to be, you know, if you're a child and you rely on free and reduced price meals, but you don't get to school in time to eat it, how are you able to, to focus and contribute to, um, you know, your educational goals and, and, you know, how you, you know, set yourself up for success further, you know, um, you know, further down the line. Um, if you're worried about, um, you know, if you're worried about food, um, do you have the means or the transportation to get to a local food pantry? Do you qualify for government benefits? It's, there is just this, um, I think, a massive um, underestimation on the general population on how um, these things tie together, but just how draining and how time consuming it is um, to live in poverty. Right. It's just, it's, um, it's heartbreaking, really. I mean, and we're trying to address a symptom, which is what we can do right now, right? We're, we're meeting the need with emergency food, but you know, we, there really needs to be broader systemic change outside of what we're capable of, um, controlling or, or contributing to right now. Right. So it's, 
it's um it's it's heartwarming because we can meet an immediate need but it's also frustrating because you know that there is so much work underneath the surface that has to be addressed before you can see real change and we're just we're going to continue to treat the symptom you know which is hunger yeah, you're plugging your one hole of the leaking ship you know which is yep. definitely reducing the amount of water but um and yeah. hopefully you know and hopefully in in um for us, you know, maybe the small ways that we can contribute is as our programs and services become more robust, as we're meeting a greater need in the community, individuals can rely on us for food access and they can take their small amount of money or budget that they have for the month and they can use it to pay for their utilities or gas that gets them to their, um, you know, job interview or um, helps pay down the medical bill, right? And so we want to we wanna continue to provide the service and we want people to know that it's a service, even if you don't think you need it, you think someone else is, is worse off, please take advantage um, of the services. If, if providing food or accessing a food pantry allows you to stretch your budget so you can cover those other necessities, it is well worth it, right? Yeah. And yeah, I, I think one of the things that the general population has noticed because of COVID is that we're all a lot closer to being in an emergency than we thought. Um, and so, um, again, you know, 25 to 30,000 new households in our lines because of COVID, um, it really doesn't take a lot. And our clients are making really, really tough choices between yeah, rent, utilities, medicine. Um, the majority of our families have at least one working adult in the home. And so hunger is hidden mostly in our community. I mean, the statistics, one in four in our community struggle with hunger. I think that's mind blowing for a lot of people. Um, but it knows no race, no religion, no age, no gender. It's ruthless really in our, in our community. And I think COVID has kind of made that that awareness um, even more prevalent um, in neighborhoods that you wouldn't expect. But I would, even pre-COVID, would venture to guess that you have a colleague, there's a kid on your child's little league team that struggles with hunger um, pre pretty frequently. Wow. Well, I, um, in respect of your guys' time, I'm going to kind of close with two two questions, um, and you guys can answer these together or separately, um, which is um, for people looking to get involved uh, with your work, uh, how might they do that? And then for each of you personally, what are some either books or places where you can do further research or reading that you'd recommend for people to kind of understand the food system and hunger and how those things all relate? So uh, whoever wants to go first. Well, I'll, I'll talk about what you can physically do here at the facility and, and maybe Kim can tie that into just, you know, broader, broader ways that you can help um, contribute to our mission. Uh, we, we always need um, volunteers. As Kim mentioned, we see, you know, anywhere between five and 6,000 volunteers a year, and we wouldn't be able to execute um, the scale of programming that we execute without them. They're just really integral to our organization. And so um, things have changed slightly in terms of volunteering due to COVID. 
Um, but we are still accepting um, on, a, on a limited, um, more limited number of community-based volunteers. And so if you're interested in, in volunteering or coming um, you know, to, to see the facility and, and helping out, you can go to uh, ccfoodbank.org um, and you can click on the volunteer link and you can sign up. Um, all of the shifts that we have available um, are there and, and online and you can get yourself and your family enrolled. Um, we accept volunteers all the way down to age five. Um, with an accompanied adult. So bring your kids. It can be a family. Um, it can be a family event. And we take 15 year olds unaccompanied. So a lot of like community service and like high school and school based work. Um, volunteering is, is, is always, um, it's a good way to, to kind of uh, see what's, what's really happening and, and what the food bank does. And then Kim can talk about the other way that we ask people to invest. There are three main ways to get involved and Natalie touched on the first one and that's volunteering. The second is donations. We rely on community support. The majority of our funding comes from the community and I think some people think it's government but it really is the community um, and no donation will be stretched further. So for every dollar we receive, we can stretch that to provide food um, to make up to seven meals. And so, you know, $10 can provide food for a family for for a week. It really, everyone, every donation can make a difference. We make that easy. You can donate online at ccfoodbank.org. You can mail us a check, cash, come on by. Um, Again, we are responsible stewards of your donations and we take our job very, very seriously. We also have the benefit of living where most of the produce is grown, which helps us leverage relationships to stretch the dollar even further. And the third is advocacy learning more about hunger, what that looks like in our community, and lending your voice. Um, to the cause, um, giving voice to people that you know that are impacted. Um, we put out calls to action um, to, you know, secure funding for, for SNAP benefits, um, for um, school nutrition um, programs. And so joining us on social media, following us. Um, we are putting those calls to action out all of the time. And so it's really a good way to just become more aware and to see people where they are and what's really going on in our community. I think that's one of the challenges in American culture is that we go to work, we come home, we open our garage door, we drive into our garage, and we really don't see the world around us and we don't see how others are living. And it doesn't take a lot of effort, um, especially in Fresno, um, to see people. And so there's a ton of literature out there on hunger. Um, the Food Research Action Center puts out a study. Fresno specifically is almost always in the top five of hungriest metropolitan areas in the entire nation. So we grow the food, but we struggle the most um, feeding our population. Um, and then just, I think, just general reading on seeing others. Um, is really helpful to get us not to be narcissistic and outside of ourselves. Um, I'm a huge fan of Bob Goff, so everybody always and love does, right? Mm -hmm. it, it are some great tools to just kind of get outside of yourself and, and see and really, really seeing people and meeting them right where they are. Yeah, I think Malcolm Gladwell's recent book was called Talking to Strangers. So maybe that's something that we 
Oh yeah, I'm gonna have to get that on my list. Yeah. Uh, Natalie, do you have any reading recommendations for people? Um, you know, as Kim mentioned, there are um, there are too many like articles and um, and books to reference. But I really, um, if I were to make a, a a recommendation, just in terms of um, getting yourself more aware, educated, really look at the intersection of of poverty and food. Um, like I mentioned earlier, food is hunger is just a symptom of some broader, deeper systemic issues that we as a community and, and, and a country have to address. And so, you know, there are, um, like, I could totally like shoot you a list through like Goodreads, you know, on, on, um, you know, like, you There's know, generational. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And I think that typically when people think about like food insecurity and like food system reading, it's like, oh my gosh, it's like such a, it's boring. It's, <laughs> yes. It's, I didn't want to say boring. I love it. Um, but I think, um, articles are a little bit easier yeah, to digest. Um, yeah. So like feeding America has really great, um, resources. Um, they put out a study every year called map the meal gap, which talks about, you know, um, the cost of food and, and, um, the number of missing meals, um, that, that we have, you know, in, in our service area and our community, um, California food policy advocates, you know, as Kim mentioned, um, puts out that study and it's a little bit easier to absorb, um, because you're not overwhelmed with like the systemic changes that, that have to happen, right. To, to make real progress. And so tiny, tiny articles and absorption through some of those, um, you know, accredited sources is probably where I would, where I would start. So a couple, couple takeaways for the listeners from this, um, you know, get out and volunteer, um, donate to the food bank ultimately. And then finally, um, be sure to order benediction as much as you can. Yes. Uh, <laughs> every day. Every day. Eggs benediction. You won't be sorry. Any ailments. Pancakes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so my my usual routine. Okay, we're just gonna go into benediction for a second. My usual routine. <laughs> um, when I go with friends, you know, like we all order our own separate benedicts. You know, I'm not gonna share what I order, but then in the center of the table, we get the s'mores pancakes, and that's kind of oh, like yeah. middle place, and that's yep. you know, it's where we share. And so, yes. you know, I. Sharing is caring. Sharing is caring. You it's have been, to. It's been a little bit for me. I think. I think it's time for a pilgrimage back. So, thanks you know, it's for, it's uh, a little warm. It's a little warm, but you can sit on the patio or get takeout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you get there early enough, right? You know. So. Yeah, exactly. All right. Thanks for talking with me, guys, and I appreciate uh, everything you do for our community. And uh, uh, then the website is ccfoodbank.org, right? Yes, sir. All right. Thanks All for right, having Thank us. you so much for the opportunity. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Make sure if you've listened this far into the podcast, that means you enjoy what we're doing. Uh, make sure you subscribe, uh, like us, and then leave a comment. Uh, all three of those things uh, really help us to, A, get a sense of who's listening, but also B, encourage others to listen. And uh, the more comments and positive feedback you get, give to us, uh, the more our audience will grow. Until next time.